Chapter Three, Part Two of Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Devorah Allen. Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, Volume Two, by Charles Mackay. Chapter Three. THE SLOW POISONERS PART Two. In the second volume of the Harleian Miscellany, there is a tract entitled The Forerunner of Revenge, written by George Eglisham, doctor of medicine, and one of the physicians to King James. Harris, in quoting it, says that it is full of rancor and prejudice. It is evidently exaggerated, but forms nevertheless a link in the chain of evidence. Eglisham says, The king being sick of an ague, the duke took this opportunity, when all the king's doctors of physic were at dinner, and offered to him a white powder to take, the which he a long time refused, but overcome with his flattering importunity, he took it in wine, and immediately became worse and worse, falling into many swoonings and pains, and violent fluxes of the belly, so tormented, that his majesty cried out aloud of this white powder, Would to God I had never taken it! He then tells us of the Countess of Buckingham, the Duke's mother, applying the plaster to the King's heart and breast, whereupon he grew faint and short-breathed, and in agony, that the physicians exclaimed that the King was poisoned, that Buckingham commanded them out of the room, and committed one of them close prisoner to his own chamber, and another to be removed from court, and that after His Majesty's death his body and head swelled above measure, his hair, with the skin of his head, stuck to his pillow, and his nails became loose on his fingers and toes. Clarendon, who, by the way, was a partisan of the Duke's, gives a totally different account of James's death. He says, It was occasioned by an ague, after a short indisposition by the gout, which, meeting many humours in a fat, unwieldy body of fifty-eight years old, in four or five fits carried him out of the world. After whose death, many scandalous and libelous discourses were raised, without the least colour or ground, as appeared upon the strictest and most malicious examination that could be made, long after, in a time of license when nobody was afraid of offending majesty, and when prosecuting the highest reproaches and contumelies against the royal family was held very meritorious. Notwithstanding this confident declaration, the world will hardly be persuaded that there was not some truth in the rumours that were abroad. The inquiries which were instituted were not as strict as he asserts, and all the unconstitutional influence of the powerful favourite was exerted to defeat them. In the celebrated accusations brought against Buckingham by the Earl of Bristol, the poisoning of King James was placed last on the list, and the pages of history bear evidence of the summary mode in which they were, for the time, got rid of. The man from whom Buckingham is said to have procured his poisons was one Dr. Lamb, a conjurer and empiric, who, besides dealing in poisons, pretended to be a fortune-teller. The popular fury which broke with comparative harmlessness against his patron was directed against this man, until he could not appear with safety in the streets of London. His fate was melancholy. Walking one day in Cheapside, disguised, as he thought, from all observers, he was recognized by some idle boys, who began to hoot and pelt him with stones, calling out, "'The poisoner! The poisoner! Down with the wizard! Down with him!' A mob very soon collected and the doctor took to his heels and ran for his life. He was pursued and seized in Wood Street, and from thence dragged by the hair through the mire to St. Paul's Cross. 
the mob beating him with sticks and stones, and calling out, "'Kill the wizard! Kill the poisoner!' Charles I, on hearing of the riot, rode from Whitehall to quell it, but he arrived too late to save the victim. Every bone in his body was broken, and he was quite dead. Charles was excessively indignant, and fined the city six hundred pounds for its inability to deliver up the ringleaders to justice. But it was in Italy that poisoning was most prevalent. From a very early period it seems to have been looked upon in that country as a perfectly justifiable means of getting rid of an enemy. The Italians of the sixteenth and seventeenth centuries poisoned their opponents with as little compunction as an Englishman of the present day brings an action at law against anyone who has done him an injury. The writings of contemporary authors inform us that, when La Spada and La Tofania carried on their infernal trade, ladies put poison bottles on their dressing tables as openly, and used them with as little scruple upon others, as modern dames use eau de cologne or lavender water upon themselves. So powerful is the influence of fashion, it can even cause murder to be regarded as a venial peccadillo. In the memoirs of the last Duke of Guise, who made a quixotic attempt in 1648 to seize upon the government of Naples, we find some curious particulars relative to the popular feeling with regard to poisoning. A man named Gennaro Anis, who, after the short and extraordinary career of Massaniello the fisherman, had established himself as a sort of captain-general of the populace, rendered himself so obnoxious to the Duke of Guise that the adherents of the latter determined to murder him. The captain of the guard, as the duke himself very coolly informs us, was requested to undertake this office. It was suggested to him that the poniard would be the most effectual instrument, but the man turned up his eyes with pious horror at the proposition. He was ready to poison Gennaro Anis whenever he might be called upon to do so, but to poniard him, he said, would be disgraceful and unbecoming an officer of the guards. At last, poison was agreed upon, and Augustino Mola, an attorney in the duke's confidence, brought the bottle containing the liquid to show it to his master. The following is the duke's own account. Augustino came to me at night and told me, I have brought you something which will free you from Gennaro. He deserves death, and it is no great matter after what fashion justice has done upon him. Look at this vial, full of clear and beautiful water. In four days' time it will punish all his treasons. The captain of the guard has undertaken to give it him and as it has no taste at all, Gennaro will suspect nothing. The Duke further informs us that the dose was duly administered, but that Gennaro, fortunately for himself, ate nothing for dinner that day but cabbage dressed with oil, which, acting as an antidote, caused him to vomit profusely and saved his life. He was exceedingly ill for five days, but never suspected that he had been poisoned. In process of time, poison vending became a profitable trade, Eleven years after this period, it was carried on at Rome to such an extent that the sluggish government was roused to interference. Beckman, in his History of Inventions, and Lebray in his Magazin zum Gebrauche der Stadtenkirche Geschichte, or Magazine of Materials for a History of a State Church, relates that in the year 1659 it was made known to Pope Alexander VII that great numbers of young women had avowed in the confessional that they had poisoned their husbands with slow poisons. The Catholic clergy, who in general hold the secrets of the confessional so sacred, were shocked and alarmed at the extraordinary prevalence of the crime. 
although they refrained from revealing the names of the penitents they conceived themselves bound to apprise the head of the church of the enormities that were practised it was also the subject of general conversation in rome that young widows were unusually abundant it was remarked too that if any couple lived unhappily together the husband soon took ill and died the papal authorities when once they began to inquire soon learned that a society of young wives had been formed and met nightly for some mysterious purpose at the house of an old woman named hieronima spara this hag was a reputed witch and fortune-teller and acted as president of the young viragos several of whom it was afterward ascertained belonged to the first families of rome in order to have positive evidence of the practices of this female conclave a lady was employed by the government to seek an interview with them she dressed herself out in the most magnificent style and having been amply provided with money she found but little difficulty when she had stated her object of procuring an audience of la spada and her sisterhood she pretended to be in extreme distress of mind on account of the infidelities and ill-treatment of her husband and implored la spada to furnish her with a few drops of the wonderful elixir the efficacy of which in sending cruel husbands to their last long sleep was so much vaunted by the ladies of rome la spada fell into the snare and sold her some of her drops at a price commensurate with the supposed wealth of the purchaser the liquor thus obtained was subjected to an analysis and found to be as was suspected a slow poison clear tasteless and limpid like that spoken of by the duke of guise upon this evidence the house was surrounded by the police and la spada and her companions taken into custody la spada who is described as having been a little ugly old woman was put to the torture but obstinately refused to confess her guilt another of the women named la graciosa had less firmness and laid bare all the secrets of the infernal sisterhood taking a confession extorted by anguish on the rack at its true value nothing at all there is still sufficient evidence to warrant posterity in the belief of their guilt they were found guilty and condemned according to their degrees of culpability to various punishments la spara graciosa and three young women who had poisoned their husbands were hanged together at rome upwards of thirty women were whipped publicly through the streets and several whose high rank screened them from more degrading punishment were banished from the country and mulcted in heavy fines in a few months afterwards nine women more were hanged for poisoning and another bevy including many young and beautiful girls were whipped half naked through the streets of rome this severity did not put a stop to the practice and jealous women and avaricious men anxious to step into the inheritance of fathers uncles or brothers resorted to poison as it was quite free from taste color and smell it was administered without exciting suspicion the skilful vendors compounded it of different degrees of strength so that the poisoners had only to say whether they wanted their victims to die in a week a month or six months and they were suited with corresponding doses the vendors were chiefly women of whom the most celebrated was a hag named tophania who was in this way accessory to the death of upwards of six hundred persons this woman appears to have been a dealer in poisons from her girlhood and resided first at palermo and then at naples that entertaining traveller father labat has given in his letters from italy many curious particulars relating to her when he was at civita vecchia in seventeen nineteen 
the viceroy of Naples discovered that poison was extensively sold in the latter city, and that it went by the name of Aqueta, or Little Water. On making further inquiry, he ascertained that Tofania, who was by that time near seventy years of age, and who seems to have begun her evil courses very soon after the execution of La Spara, sent large quantities of it to all parts of Italy in small vials, with the inscription, Mana of St. Nicholas of Bari. The tomb of St. Nicholas of Bari was celebrated throughout Italy. A miraculous oil was said to ooze from it, which cured nearly all the maladies that flesh is heir to, provided the recipient made use of it with the due degree of faith. La Tofania artfully gave this name to her poison to elude the vigilance of the custom-house officers, who, in common with everybody else, had a pious respect for St. Nicholas de Bari and his wonderful oil. The poison was similar to that manufactured by La Spara. Hahnemann, the physician, and father of the homeopathic doctrine writing upon this subject, says it was compounded of arsenic-neutral salts, occasioning in the victim a gradual loss of appetite, faintness, gnawing pains in the stomach, loss of strength, and wasting of the lungs. The Abbe Gagliardi says that a few drops of it were generally poured into tea, chocolate, or soup, and its effects were slow and almost imperceptible. Gorelli, physician to the Emperor of Austria, in a letter to Hoffman, says it was crystallized arsenic, dissolved in a large quantity of water by decoction, with the addition, for some unexplained purpose, of the herb Cymbalaria. The Neapolitans called it aqua tofnina, and it became notorious all over Europe under the name of aqua tofania. Although this woman carried on her infamous traffic so extensively, it was extremely difficult to meet with her. She lived in continual dread of discovery. She constantly changed her name and residence, and pretending to be a person of great godliness, resided in monasteries for months together. Whenever she was more than usually apprehensive of detection, she sought ecclesiastical protection. She was soon apprised of the search made for her by the Viceroy of Naples, and according to her practice, took refuge in a monastery. Either the search after her was not very rigid, or her measures were exceedingly well taken, for she contrived to elude the vigilance of the authorities for several years. What is still more extraordinary, as showing the ramifications of her system, her trade was still carried on to as great an extent as before. Labat informs us that she had so great a sympathy for poor wives who hated their husbands and wanted to get rid of them, but could not afford to buy her wonderful aqua, that she made them presents of it. She was not allowed, however, to play at this game forever. She was at length discovered in a nunnery, and her retreat cut off. The viceroy made several representations to the superior to deliver her up, but without effect. The abbess, supported by the archbishop of the diocese, constantly refused. The public curiosity was in consequence so much excited at the additional importance thus thrust upon the criminal, that thousands of persons visited the nunnery in order to catch a glimpse of her. The patience of the viceroy appears to have been exhausted by these delays. Being a man of sense, and not a very zealous Catholic, he determined that even the church should not shield a criminal so atrocious. Setting the privileges of the nunnery at defiance, he sent a troop of soldiers, who broke over the walls and carried her away viet armis. The archbishop, Cardinal Pignatelli, was highly indignant, and threatened to excommunicate and lay the whole city under interdict. All the inferior clergy, animated by the esprit du corps, took up the question, 
and so worked upon the superstitious and bigoted people that they were ready to rise in a mass to storm the palace of the viceroy and rescue the prisoner. These were serious difficulties, but the viceroy was not a man to be daunted. Indeed, he seems to have acted throughout with a rare union of astuteness, coolness, and energy. To avoid the evil consequences of the threatened excommunication, he placed a guard round the palace of the archbishop, judging that the latter would not be so foolish as to launch out an anathema which would cause the city to be starved, and himself in it. The market people would not have dared to come to the city with provisions so long as it remained under the ban. There would have been too much inconvenience to himself and his ghostly brethren in such a measure. And as the viceroy anticipated, the good cardinal reserved his thunders for some other occasion. Still there was the populace. To quiet their clamor and avert the impending insurrection, the agents of the government adroitly mingled with the people, and spread abroad a report that Tophania had poisoned all the wells and fountains of the city. This was enough. The popular feeling was turned against her immediately. Those who, but a moment before, had looked upon her as a saint, now reviled her as a devil, and were as eager for her punishment as they had before been for her escape. Tophania was then put to the torture. She confessed the long catalogue of her crimes, and named all the persons who had employed her. She was shortly afterwards strangled, and her corpse thrown over the wall into the garden of the convent from whence she had been taken. This appears to have been done to conciliate the clergy, by allowing them at least the burial of one who had taken refuge within their precincts. After her death, the mania for poisoning seems to have abated, but we have yet to see what hold it took upon the French people at a somewhat earlier period. So rooted had it become in France between the years 1670 and 1680 that Madame de Savine, in one of her letters, expresses her fear that Frenchman and poisoner would become synonymous terms. As in Italy, the first notice the government received of the prevalence of this crime was given by the clergy, to whom females of high rank, and some among the middle and lower classes, had avowed in the confessional that they had poisoned their husbands. In consequence of these disclosures, two Italians, named Exili and Glazer, were arrested and thrown into the Bastille on the charge of compounding and selling the drugs used for these murders. Glazer died in prison, but Exili remained without trial for several months, and there, shortly afterwards, he made the acquaintance of another prisoner named Saint-Croix, by whose example the crime was still further disseminated among the French people. End of chapter 3, part 2